Good morning. I'm especially grateful that you have turned out on a Thursday chapel, which is evidently not something you're used to. Creatures of habit and rhythm. And uh, so the fact that you all came, you're an unusually bright spot in the Covenant College community. So thank you for coming. Um, Covenant, as uh, a lot of you know and are aware of, is a part of a denomination, Presbyterian Church in America. And as such, uh, there's a lot of people out there within the denomination who care about what we do and are interested in supporting us. And years ago, uh, one agency of the PCA, uh, known as Women in the Church, uh, gathered funds uh, to support our work uh, and enabled us to endow a lecture series uh, that would enable us to bring in speakers from across the country, a lot of them extremely acclaimed, uh, including the one we're about to, to welcome here, uh, to challenge us to think about uh, how we can become more uh, aware of what's going on in the world and prepared to engage the world faithfully. Uh, known for many years as the WIC lectures for the women in the church, uh, we are, uh, actually the women in the church as such doesn't exist but by a different name. So we decided to also change the name of the lectures uh, to something more Latin sounding, I guess, um, res publica. And that is, uh, that is Latin for public affairs or concerns about the public. It's where we get our word republic from. And uh, we hope that these lectures will likewise challenge and equip you to confront uh, public issues in a thoughtful, uh, faithful way. Uh, our lecturer this morning uh, is Dr. John Inazu. Uh, and he, uh, in addition to offering this chapel, uh, will also be teaching a class associated with Res Publica uh, beginning this evening uh, from 6.30 to 10.30, also tomorrow in chapel, tomorrow evening, 6.30 to 10.30, and Saturday morning, give an opportunity for a more extended engagement in this material. Uh, Dr. Inazu is the Sally D. Danforth Distinguished Professor of Law and Religion and uh, Professor of Political Science at Washington University in St. Louis, where he teaches criminal law, law and religion, and various First Amendment seminars. Uh, he earned his PhD in political science from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, and a JD at Duke University. Uh, his scholarship focuses on First Amendment freedoms of speech, assembly, and religion, uh, and related questions of legal and political theory. Uh, his first book, Liberty's Refuge, The Forgotten Freedom of Assembly, published by Yale in 2012. Uh, and more recently, and really the focus for these lectures, is uh, this book entitled Confident Pluralism, uh, Surviving and Thriving Deep Difference, which was published in 2016. Um, in that book and in these lectures, Professor Inazu asks us what it means for us to live together peaceably in spite of deep and sometimes seemingly irresolvable differences over politics, religion, sexuality, and other concerns. Pluralism is maybe for some of us, is at times for, for me, uh, an intimidating and kind of a scary concept, the profound and deep differences that divide us. And we really do need a lot of help in figuring out what it means to live faithfully in, in, in the midst of that uh, and to understand uh, what it means for God to have called us to this time, this place. Uh, Professor Inazu is among the most thoughtful uh, guides uh, currently uh, that we have 
to both understand the challenges as they exist, but also to bring a faithful Christian word to us in, uh, of challenge. So I'm excited for him to be here on this important topic. Would you please welcome Professor John Anazi? privilege to be here with all of you, and thank you, uh, Jay, for the introduction. Uh, you know, after a day of classes, what would be more exciting than a four-hour night class? So I encourage you to join me tonight. I will have, I will have a contest and candy for the winners, so that's some modest incentive. Uh, I want to begin with a passage of scripture, and not really to exposit it, but to frame some of the issues. I'm not a pastor or a theologian. I used to be a Young Life leader, but I don't think that counts. Uh, but I do think that the subject of today's talk and really the focus of what I'll be discussing this weekend at the intersection of law and culture, when it comes to the church and how Christians think about these issues, does call us to scripture. And so I want to begin by looking at a passage probably familiar to many of you from the Gospel of John and just ask us to keep this in the background of our minds as we think today. This is John 17, the famous unity text. Jesus has just finished praying for his disciples in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one so they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved me even as you have loved them. So we, those who come after the disciples of Jesus, are called to unity in order that the world may know about the love of God, an important task, and we aren't always so good at it. This passage from John has been significant to me for a long time, but I've only recently begun to pay attention to the text that comes right before it. In this part of the prayer, also in John 17, Jesus says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. So Jesus is saying that his disciples will remain in the world, but they will not be of the world. And he asks God to protect them and to sanctify them. And all of this counsel from Jesus seems particularly relevant to our situation today. And so let's keep in mind this threefold challenge from Jesus as we think through complex questions of pluralism and law and culture. Jesus says, be in the world, be sanctified, and be unified. One reason to start with the scriptural framing is that it reminds us that as the people of God, regardless of the challenges or circumstances we encounter, we know who we are called to be. Yes, we have to be attuned to our circumstances and work hard, but we are called to faithfulness and not necessarily effectiveness. And so with this background of John 17, let's turn to this question of pluralism, by which I mean the deep and actual differences in society that divide us. And we can start with the example of coffee, it used to be we could just drink coffee in peace, but today if you go to Starbucks, you see them falsely accused of waging a war on Christmas and accurately told uh, that they are backing a bunch of progressive causes that have little to do with coffee. And in the other direction, not to be outdone by the left, 
a company called the Black Rifle Company has recently launched its Freedom Blend as a counter to Starbucks. And I went to the company's website and scrolled through the comments, and they were of the order of, my Keurig has finally been liberated by the liberal commies. Uh, and now I can have the coffee that I want. And so we're divided about coffee. We're divided by more serious matters like politics. We have Roy Moore in Alabama saying he does not think a Muslim should serve in the United States Senate. And we have Bernie Sanders telling Wheaton grad Russell Vogt that he doesn't deserve to be in the administration because he is a Christian. And so these matters are significant and they affect our lives. And we also disagree about other matters. And so when you think about pluralism, I don't want you to think that all difference is bad. Some differences are neutral and some are even good. But some are painful and not so good. And so I had this discussion recently with an atheist philosopher friend of mine, because this is what we do. We talk about pluralism in our spare time. And he was saying, you know, it's a great thing, all of this difference in the world. You like mint chocolate chip ice cream and I like vanilla. You like the Cardinals and I like the Cubs. You believe in God and I don't believe in God. And to him, all of these differences made the world more interesting. But as a Christian, I did not think that to be the case, right? Our differences in the belief of God and the created nature of humanity end up being painful differences and their mutually exclusive difference differences. It can't be the case that God exists and God does not exist. It can't be the case that how we treat the environment matters and that it doesn't matter. It can't be the case that the act of abortion is both morally good and morally bad. These and other differences that we could all name cut against this American story of unity that we sometimes see in our documents and our discourse. Words like a more perfect unity and being one nation undivided. But we are actually more defined by our differences than by our unity, and these differences pervade a lot of our actual lives. They're not going away, and that leaves us with a very practical political problem, what to do with all of these differences. The philosopher Rousseau gave us one answer. Rousseau said, it's impossible for man to live at peace with those he thinks are damned. Now that's a pretty bleak pronouncement about our shared life together, and so I want to suggest that Rousseau was wrong, and instead of this elusive goal of unity, we don't actually have to go to his proposal. We can find a more modest possibility of common existence in the midst of our differences. Now this is a challenge, I think, for a lot of Americans to think through, and this is a particularly a challenge for white Protestants. I'm half of one of those, which is to say that I'm half white, not half Protestant. And it's a challenge for white Protestants especially because as recently as a generation ago, there was a kind of Protestant culture in the white middle class that hung together institutions and values about religion and a sense of coherence for some in this country. And that has changed. As the Catholic writer Joseph Bottom has suggested, perhaps the single most important sociological fact in recent history has been the collapse of Protestant mainline institutions. And whatever you think about the mainline today, Bottom's right to say that 50 years ago, the mainline strung together education and social services and different parts of our culture in a way that it doesn't do today. And that comes with some 
gains and losses. It does raise questions about coherence. What is it that makes us the United States, if not some vague notion of religion? But it also, I think, is an opportunity for citizens and for Christians to say uh, what it means to live in a diverse society and what it means to be called to be not entirely of this world. And as we ponder these questions and what it means to be in society today, one caution is to resist the urge to think that there's a past to which we can return or a more coherent age, because that raises the question of when that is, right? Going back to the 1950s is not a good bargain for African Americans. Going back to the 1940s is not good for Japanese Americans like my grandparents and my dad who were interned during the Second World War. The only real possibility to think about is the present and what we do in it. And this is where my argument for confident pluralism comes into the equation. It takes both confidence and pluralism seriously. Confidence without pluralism misses the reality of politics, and it ends up suppressing difference, sometimes with violence. And pluralism without confidence misses the reality of people. It papers over differences and pretends that we have this kind of false consensus or fake unity. Confident pluralism acknowledges real difference and asks that we coexist without suppressing or minimizing our firmly held convictions. Instead of shutting down or avoiding those with whom we disagree, confident pluralism asks for the space for meaningful difference and with it the opportunity for mutual persuasion. Now there's both a legal and a personal dimension to this argument and in the courses in the evening lectures we'll dive deeply into both elements, law and culture. I want to give you just a preview of some of this today, but before I get to the heart of the law, I do want to mention that I think this is widely misunderstood by Christians today in two different and competing ways. Some Christians are incredibly uninformed about the law. And to them, I would say, you need to better recognize the vast challenges that are already baked into our constitutional law and the ways that those challenges are going to affect Christian institutions in the years to come. But other Christians are misinformed in the opposite direction. They're told by fundraising letters from religious liberty advocacy groups that the sky is falling, that churches are on the verge of being shut down, and that pastors will be imprisoned. And that's both uninformed and at times disingenuous. I think as Christians, it does us no good to misrepresent or misunderstand the challenges in either direction. Now, if you want to know the right answer to where religious liberty stands in this country today, you'll have to either read my book or come to the classes tonight. But to give you a, a, just a sample of where I think we need to be thinking better, the key to stronger legal protections that would make confident pluralism po possible begins with focusing on the need to protect our differences. So there's a paradox here. We have to agree enough to know that we need to protect the ability to disagree. And I want to suggest that the connection to the law here lies in the First Amendment's right of assembly. Now, this is the subject of my first book, and sad for me, it also remains a very unknown right in this country even after that book. So about one in ten Americans could even name the First Amendment's right of assembly. But one reason I think the loss of attention to assembly is important is that it's the only right in the First Amendment 
that cannot be exercised by a single individual. There are five individual rights in the First Amendment, the right to speech, press, petition, religion, and assembly. And I can do any of those other four on my own. I could start a blog and be the press. I could petition the government. I could speak even if no one's listening. And in some ways, I can practice religion on my own. But I can't assemble on my own. The verb itself or the noun requires me to be with at least one other person. And so that suggests to me that the right of assembly is inherently relational and introduces a set of values and, and ideas into the First Amendment that are not there otherwise. This also respect, uh, reflects the way that most of us actually live our lives. We live our lives in groups, and our beliefs and identities are formed in groups. The framers knew this, and that's one of the reasons they chose to put the right of assembly in the First Amendment. Part of confident pluralism requires recovering these values and these ways of understanding how we exist in society together. We have to insist that the people whom we entrust to govern us honor basic legal protections for the groups that we have, even if that increases the risk of friction, uncertainty, and instability. And by the way, it likely will, that when we form groups and when we have different ways of seeing the world that compete with one another, we're going to have less stability and more friction in society. So that's the law side. There's a lot more to it, but I won't get into it now. Confident pluralism, though, also depends on us and what we do in the space that is outside of the law. And it turns out that quite a bit of what we do happens outside of the law. Right? We have strong free speech norms in this country, and you can say almost anything to almost anyone. The law is not going to tell you what to do, which then puts a bunch of responsibility on each of us. How are we going to choose to speak in the freedoms that we have? And I want to suggest to you that in our speech and also in some of our other actions where the law doesn't tell us what to do, that we can be guided by three aspirations, humility, patience, and tolerance. Humility asks us to recognize that when it comes to our deepest convictions, we won't always be able to prove why we're right and someone else is wrong. Or put another way, humility recognizes that some of our beliefs rest upon values that can't be justified outside of particular traditions. Sometimes you have to be part of something before you can fully understand it. This humility is based on the limits of what we can prove to other people, not on what is ultimately true. And for this reason, it's important that humility or confident pluralism more broadly need not be mistaken as relativism. Humility leaves open the possibility of right and wrong in an absolute sense and good and evil. It does not challenge our confidence in our own beliefs, but it calls for us to recognize that those beliefs often stem from contested first premises that not everybody else shares. And humility recognizes that our ability to think as human beings is inherently limited in some ways. As the theologian Leslie Newbegin has observed, we are continually required to act on beliefs that are not demonstrably certain and to commit our lives to propositions that can be doubted. That's one reason that everybody, whether religious or not, lives and acts on a kind of faith. 
That's humility. The second aspiration is patience. And patience is a commitment that we seek to listen and understand and empathize with other people, even those with whom we disagree over serious matters. That doesn't mean we're, we're, that the goal is to find agreement. So it might be that if I listen patiently to your views, I find out that you're just as crazy as I thought you were. But we can at least assume a posture of something different, that we begin a conversation without a caricature and with a, with a generous charity to listening to understand. And then finally, tolerance. Tolerance is the idea that for the most part, people should be free to pursue their own beliefs and practices, even those that we find objectionable. This is not going to be easy, as one philosopher has quipped, the challenge of tolerance is that we need it only for the intolerable. But tolerance here does not mean full acceptance. And this is a really important distinction that I think is being lost in American culture today, and particularly on a lot of university campuses. The arguments that suggest you only tolerate me if you fully accept me and embrace me for who I am. I think that's actually a philosophical impossibility, but it doesn't stop people from making the claim. And parsing the difference between tolerance and approval is going to require the hard work of distinguishing between people and their ideas. Tolerance asks that you and I treat people with respect. It doesn't mean that we respect all ideas. Everyone in this room holds ideas that other people find unpersuasive or even crazy. And everyone in this room holds ideas that other people find morally reprehensible. The tolerance of confident pluralism does not impose the fiction that all ideas are equally valid or morally harmless, but it does mean respecting people aiming for fair discussion, and allowing for the space to differ about serious matters. I want to suggest that these aspirations of humility, patience, and tolerance can help us to build relationships across difference. That doesn't mean we're always going to close ideological difference. It doesn't mean we're going to find agreement on all the hard issues. But we can begin to close relational difference and distance, and that matters in ordinary but also extraordinary ways. We can find common ground with others even when we don't agree on the common good. Pursuing this common ground does not mean surrendering our deeply held beliefs. And to the contrary, I think we actually have to start by acknowledging with particularity what our disagreements are and the reality of our differences. Without the ability to air honestly and genuinely real disagreement, we're not going to dialogue, and our assumptions are going to go unchallenged. Humility is going to become a claim of moral certainty. Patience will be replaced by outrage, and tolerance will ultimately become that demand for acceptance. Now, some of these possibilities are getting bleaker in light of our national politics and the challenges to established institutions and the general skepticism or concern about the nature of authority all of which, as you and I know far too well, is just exacerbated by social media and probably our own social media practices. And in some ways, the future trends don't look all that better. I was speaking with, on a panel with the New York Times journalist Nick Kristoff, and, and Kristoff said, if you think that the, the national media has been bad the last 10 years, just hold on for the next 10. 
because all of the market incentives are pushing in exactly the wrong directions and the, the funding and financial models of our national media are not going to turn around. And so these are some pretty serious challenges for all of us. Does that leave room for confidence in what I'm arguing? Well, one early reviewer of my book who was otherwise fairly kind to me wrote that he thought it was doomed to immediate irrelevance because because in his view, there was no audience left to understand it or care about it. I don't think he's right. I mean, I speak to lots of sort of audiences with people your age, and I see a lot of people who are wanting and willing to try. And I also have some modest confidence when I look at the history of our country, which, although very imperfectly and never fully, has been about finding a modest, onity, uh, modest unity against great odds and across deep differences. For Christians, of course, there's an even greater basis for confidence, and that's rooted in the theological virtue of hope. You and I can engage in this messy and uncertain world because we know the end of the story and because we're called to be in the world and not of it, and not just called but reassured by Jesus himself of that. Christians of all people should see not only the challenges of pluralism and difference, but also the opportunities, precisely because our confidence and our hope is in the gospel. So how do we do this practically? Well, that's tomorrow's talk, so you'll have to come back, although I'm told that you will come back, which is good news. Uh, but let me suggest to you that in the midst of these uncertain and sometimes volatile times, Christians can be an example of confident engagement with our neighbors as across difference. As Jesus counsels us in John 17, we can be in the world, but not of it. And we can pursue humility, patience, and tolerance because we ground our lives in faith and hope and love. Thank you.